is when he has come, and, and who, who is he, God the Holy Spirit? He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So when it says of guilt, because the world is guilty with regard to this particular sin. What sin is that? And the sin is the rejection of Christ, as we shall find out in verse 9. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. We talked about this last week in good detail. Uh, then we're just going to move to Genesis 6.3. And Genesis 6.3 6, says, Even in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had a ministry uh, to uh, lost man. And we know lost man because lost man, many were lost in the flood. Unsaved man. But the Holy Spirit had a ministry to them. And it says, My spirit will not always strive with man. For in that he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. We read that, and we knew that it was 120 years before the flood. Well, that is to say God, God had given them grace before judgment. And that's always nice to have, grace before judgment. And there we have God and the Holy Spirit is trying to work, convict men, even then turn them, turning them to Christ. That's common. To common grace means it's common to everybody. It happens in every case. And we know if it happens to people who are unbelievers and people who do not get saved, then we, we can also say, we can add to this, that uh, God the Holy Spirit goes after people whose, whose sins have been paid, but yet they have not uh, come to believe in Christ. Their sins are atoned for, but they have not believed in Christ. Well, look at... Um, Acts chapter 7, 51. There's a couple, and, and I would say these are negative scriptures. Negative in the, in the sense that uh, we can derive from them what we're, what we're saying here. We can derive the truth of, of, of what we're saying. Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. Let's read it. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV. Interesting things tonight. Interesting, you'll see. Okay, Acts 7.51, Stephen is being, uh, w was uh, about to be stoned. He was about to be executed, killed. And this is, and, and if you go back and look at the context, you'll find that he gives quite a discourse on the Old Testament, which is really nice for us to note. Uh, you know, he gives a nice summation. And this is to say that Stephen knew doctrine. He was not an ignorant person, somebody who just, you know, did not understand the things of God. No, Stephen knew his Bible. And this is, if you can go back and look at all the things that he mentions here, and he, he doesn't have a Bible to whip out and try to go to the Scriptures. He just recounts all of this right off the top of his head, you know. And, and I, I really want you to look at that about Stephen just to, as an example. Verse 51, he says... To them, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. And what does he mean? You stiff. He's really saying that these people are stubborn. They are resistant to God, the Holy Spirit. That's what what he's really trying to get across. And, and uncircumcised hearts and ears means that they will not even hear the truth. They, 
Stephen's telling them straight in their face and they will not hear. And that's really bad. Uh, Christ actually walked and he was the word of truth and he walked it and, and they looked him in the eye and they still rejected him. So here he says, you stiff-necked and uns people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. What do you mean your fathers? Uh, he's talking about your ancestors. Who's, who are they? Well, if you go back and he's really recounting the history of Israel and how Israel was a rebellious people, how they rebelled against God. And he's saying that same spirit of rebellion is alive and well in you. So he's saying, just like your forefathers resisted the Holy Spirit, so do you. So when he says they're uncircumcised, that also would say they're unregenerated? Yeah, absolutely. Uncircumcised in heart, which means, well, well, we talked about what the circumcision of the heart is, right. uh, where, where God the Holy Spirit cuts us out of the sin nature. Here, but he's using this in a term because he, he, it's a really a term uh, to deride them because they called themselves a circumcision, thinking that you know we're God's people. So, so he's saying to them, you're uncircumcised in heart. In other words, you got you might think you're outwardly God's, but God, in your heart you resist God. They're circumcised by man, but not by the Holy Spirit. That's right, not by God. Now, actually, Paul mentions that in Romans two, the same thing. So then he says in verse 52, Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? And he, he's recounting the history of Israel and how they killed the prophets. So that leads us to another passage. Um, and oh, Before we get to that one. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Now, he's laying it on the line. And you have received the law that was put in effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Well, the law, right? Remember we talked about Paul, right? And we said Paul was resisting the ministry of the law, right, from God the Holy Spirit. He was resisti resisting that. And that was because, and, and that the result of that was he thought he was obeying the law, remember? He said, I'm blameless, right, as far as the law is concerned. And he wasn't allowing the God, the Holy Spirit, to witness the law to his heart. And that's what Stephen is saying here. He's saying, you have received the law that was put into effect through angels, a mediator basically, but have not obeyed it. And, and that's what he means by your uncircumcised in heart. Now, going back to Matthew, just to pick up on that phrase, and you know what, I forgot we did have a question tonight that we wanted to answer. And we'll get back to that. But in Matthew chapter 23, Matthew 23, we'll just cover these verses really quick, and then we, we have another point to make here. Jesus is really dealing with Someone has entered the conference. and Pharisees as well. He, he really is. And in Matthew 23, he gives what I call these woes, these woe statements. It starts in verse 23. But um, I'm going to pick up. There are seven woes in Matthew 23. I'm going to pick up at verse 29. Right? He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. You say, 
If we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Notice the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And that's what Stephen said just now. He says, you, uh, was there ever a prophet that you did not persecute? That's what he said. So this is where Jesus is picking up the same, the same spirit of rebellion he is seeing in these people. And now Stephen later sees the same spirit of rebellion in Acts, right? So you testify, look at verse 31. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. And, and he goes, he really goes off next, in the next few. So notice that they had to resist the Holy Spirit. And when I say, why do I say negative? This is a negative proof for common grace. Because uh, in order for you to resist the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has to be trying to turn your heart to Christ. So that's why we mean that re, you know, we, we can teach common grace from Acts 7.51. They resisted God the Holy Spirit. And uh, even though these people were lost, just imagine, they were still pursued by God the Holy Spirit. This is also interesting for people who are of a Calvinistic background and what they will say is that um, the Holy Spirit uh, or, or that Christ did only he only died for some sins he didn't die for the sins of the whole world only the elect well the others he never died for they have no hope in this world and they will never come to God and my question to them is if they will never come to God why is God after them and why was he after them for God don't know. Right. He's the one that it didn't include their sins in Christ. He would he would certainly know. Why is he after them like this? If they have no hope of being or coming anyway. What if one of them turned around and said, Okay, I'll come now? Well, two you can't come. You can't come. So then he goes on in verse thirty three, and here's the verse I'm coming to. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Now watch Jesus here. Jesus, these are recalcitrant people, stubborn people, people who, who really have no regard for God at all. Remember, they cursed Jesus to his face, called him a demon-possessed man, said he was had a devil, said he was crazy, basically. And, and, and Jesus is saying to them, this is his attitude, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, notice, you were not willing. I was longing to gather you and to, to caress you just like a hen would her chicks. But you, well, who's the problem here? It's not that God is not going after them. It's that you, it says, are not willing. And this is Christ speaking. 
That's Christ. And he said, I. I would. Way back then, Christ right. said, I. Yeah. He said, so I, I, and through the Holy Spirit, and actually right here, and this is in time, where these people are resisting him to his face. Not only did the forefathers resist him, and, and they persecuted the prophets, but even in this day, Christ is saying, you resist me to your face. As a result of that, on you shall come all the, the blood of righteous Abel to, you know, Zechariah, son of Berechiah. So then he says in verse, look, your house is left to you <coughs> desolate. So he has to, just like we said in Noah's day, there was a probationary period where God says, I'm going to give him 120 years. Well, there was grace before judgment as well. When did the judgment come down on Jerusalem? When did that happen? Seventy A.D. Mm -hmm. For forty years, remember, and using the gift of tongues, God warned Israel of the impending judgment that was to come. Good evening. So that that is important for us to note. Now we uh, so here we have uh, we we must include uh, for common grace the Matthew. 23 and then verses oh I guess we covered really we covered verse um, from verses 29 uh, through uh, 38 29 through 38 so does God go after people absolutely and why is he going after people he's going after people to get to turn them to turn their hearts to Christ God, the Holy Spirit, that's his job. Does he do a good job at what he does? He's relentless at turning people to the heart, heart, uh, their heart back to God. He has to be for him to have, be able to say, man has no excuse. That's right. So, and we're going to come to that too. We have, we have to also think about that. But before we do, I know there is one question on the table. Before we cover... Uh, the finish, we'll finish Common Grace and I want to try to deal with that question. We'll just take it. This is a parenthesis where we're taking a break and we'll come right back. Second Peter 2. Bill has a question and the question is in Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2. We just want to cover this really quick and I'll let you address what the question is. Peter chapter 2, verse 20. 2 and verse 20. 2 Peter 2 and verse 20. It says, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Is that the verse? <coughs> First Peter, Second Peter, two and twenty. And what was the question about that? Were these people saved because they have escaped the defilement of the world, 
by knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Were they saved? Yeah. Um, well, and the answer to that is no. And here's why. Because, and we're going to look at the context, and the context is going to help us answer this whole thing out, straight out, the context. And always, we always want to depend on the context. So who are these people? Who are they? And they heard the gospel, mm -hmm. refused it, keep on refusing it, mm -hmm. and because they have heard it, mm -hmm. it's going to be worse for them in the end than it was when they first heard it. Uh -huh. So, now how do you know that? Because we've gone over, over <laughs> Okay. Over Thank you. Over. We have covered this, and but you know what we're going to do? We're going to make sure we nail it down so that it is, uh, we're sure that these are unbelievers. And, and I've, I've told, I've taught this from the standpoint of unbeliever reversionism. This is what we call this. Unbeliever reversionism. Well, who are these people? We can start in chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Peter is talking about apostasy, but these, these apostates are those who are actually... They have positions in the church. And it says they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord. Now, if they deny the sovereign Lord, are they believers? No. We're sure about that. Yeah. Any question? Can they be believers if they deny the sovereign Lord? No. Absolutely not. So, so we, we have confirmed that Peter is introducing... A subject here about these false teachers, but go ahead. Mm -hmm. The sovereign Lord here is Christ. Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, He's the one who bought them, right? Mm -hmm. He paid for their sins. That's Second Peter two one. He says they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. And what will happen to them? Bringing swift destruction on themselves. Swift destruction. When the, well, that's you know. Not only are they lost and they're unbelievers, but they're in the church teaching, leading astray believers. That's why the Lord is going to have to judge them. Many will follow their shameful ways and bring the way of truth into disrepute. So obviously, these are not believers, right? And then it goes on in their greed. They uh, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has been hanging over them. And their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in the gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the floods on the ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. Now, first of all, after reading all of that, we have examples of what? Unbelievers. He gave three examples, right? He talked about the angels who sinned. Well, certainly they're, they're against God because they were trying to thwart God's plan. Right? Then he talks about the ancient world. Who's that? All those antediluvian people. They certainly, all of them were lost. Only God only saved Noah. Then he also mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. 
What happened there? You think they were believers? Absolutely not. In fact, God said to, you know, he, he, remember Abraham was was bartering with God. Said, "Well, Lord, if there are forty righteous people in there, wouldn't you? You wouldn't destroy it, would you?" And so, God and Abraham got him all the way down. Remember, and to, but still, he didn't go down far enough because uh, only there was right. There was Lot and just his daughters. Even his wife didn't make it out. His wife didn't make it out. Almost, right? So, so think about this. We're not talking about believers here. And there's no way you can construe this in any way for this to be believers. But yet, people will, will come up with this. Okay, go ahead. All right, so when, now, when he's telling the congregation this... Oh, we didn't get to it yet. We're still getting to it. Okay. Let's, let's keep going. Okay. Verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly men from trial. Let's skip down to this. Uh, look at verse um, uh, oh, 10. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. So he's giving you the character of these false teachers, these apostates. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to, to be caught and destroyed like beasts. They too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. This reminds me of uh, where Jesus says it is better. If you harm one of these little ones, it is better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you be cast into the depths of the sea. And Peter, he, Peter is saying the same thing sort of thing about these people. They are blots and blemishes, revealing their pleasure uh, while they feast with you. Their eyes, full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a, and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the ways of Balaam, son of Baal, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech who spoke a man's voice, restrained the prophet's madness. Notice, madness. These men are springs without water. Uh, they are driven by a storm, and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. Does that save people? You sure? For their mouth, they mouth empty, boastful words by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature. They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves for depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Now watch this. Who are we talking about? If they, who's they? These men. These same ones that he's been talking about the whole chapter. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled and overcome by it, they are, at, they are worse off at the end than they, are, they were at the beginning. So first of all, it definitely declares that the context shows that it's referring to these false teachers. And why, how did they even gain a foothold in the church in the first place? Because they had an air of righteousness. You know, somebody came in here with all of those characteristics, and you think we would let them here to teach them? <coughs> Absolutely not. 
In fact, we would show them the door, right? Yeah, this is, we want to maintain a standard here of, of Christ. So here, these people got, they wormed their way into the church and got hold of a position of leadership because, uh, you know, the, these unsuspecting members were there, these lambs, right? And, and then, after they got in, they began to show and be, had to have the character of what they really were. Peter's exposing them, right? So he says, now, now what does it mean they have escaped the corruption in the world, right? Uh, by knowing the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, is their affiliation with believers, their affiliation with the church of Jesus Christ, right, has given them a sort of moral respectability uh, in, in their communities. That's why they were able to come into the church. So it's not a matter that they were saved. Why not? Why were they not saved? And, and then it says, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off than the end than they were at the beginning. It's sort of like what Jules said. Well, first of all, um, at the beginning, they, they were just out there and evil. But then what did they do? They wormed their way into the church. And then they deceived people. They, they, they put on this air of respectability. And then they, re they deceived people. And remember, all this that Peter said about them, the darkness, blackness is reserved for them, you know, and all these judgments that he's saying, of course it's going to be worse off in the end for them than it is if they had never came into the church and perpetrated such a fraud and deceived God's people. Remember, it's just like Jesus said, better than a millstone be tied around his neck than you hurt one of these little ones. So, so these people are coming in and hurting the flock. They are, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And this is what, what's happening with them. That's why it says it's worse, worse off in the end than they were at the beginning. Now watch this. Verse 21. It would have been better for them, these people, not to have known the way of righteousness. Now, what do you mean known the way of righteousness? They associated with God's people. But they spurned it. When it says they knew the way of righteousness, were they righteous? No, because we just read all the character about who they were. They are full of lust, eyes full of adultery, always just, you know, giving themselves over to sin. Uh, and all these uh, analogies about Sodom and, you know, the flood and all these people, this, these, these are who they're likened to. So they know the way of righteousness, but they have not taken the way of righteousness. Then it says, then to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command. What is the sacred command? That is passed on. That, that was passed on to them. What do you think that is? The gospel. Yeah. It has to be the gospel. That's the only thing that can save a person. There is no command that anybody can obey and then be righteous. Other than the gospel. Because the Bible says, Therefore by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. So you can't obey a command, any command that's in the law or some command in order to be righteous with God. The only way you can be righteous is if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you will be saved. So when it says they turned their back on it, they never accepted the command. Never. They turned, when they got the command, it was passed on to them. They heard, the, believe on the Lord. They said, no, I will not. How do we know that that's absolutely so? Because in the very first verse, it says it, doesn't it? It says they even deny the sovereign Lord who purchased them. So then it goes, here it says, um, 
and it was passed on to them. Now watch verse 22. It sums the whole thing up, doesn't it? Nicely. Verse 22. Of them, of who? These same ones, the Proverbs are true. And here's the Proverbs. One, a dog returns to its vomit. A sow that it was washed goes back into her wallowing in the mud. This confirms that absolutely these men are unbelievers. Isn't that right? Why? <clears throat> there you go. <coughs> Notice their nature hasn't changed. A dog. Never is a believer called a dog in Scripture. We start, start saying things that you would say to a believer in love. That's right. Chapter 3. They never were changed. Never were changed. So what did they do? A dog. You know, have you ever seen a dog? He eats something, right? He spits it up. Then he eats it again. And he spits it up, right? And why do they do that? And we won't go into that. But, but then, notice that a dog returns to its vomit. He regurgitates something. He eats it again. And, and this is what it's like. And then it says, a sow that is washed. Notice a sow. What's a sow? A pig. Is a believer ever likened to a pig in Scripture? Anywhere? Nowhere. So, unbelievers are, right? So, a sow is washed. Now, wait a minute. A sow is washed? It's all cleaned up? So, so that it can come into church, right? Be respectable. But what really is the nature of a sow? It's going to do what it, it's going to do what a sow does. And what does a sow do? Goes back to her wallowing in the mire, in the mud. That's that confirms to me beyond any reasonable doubt that these people were certainly unbelievers. And and what goes on here is un, I call it unbeliever reversionism. Now, believers can revert back and do things that unbelievers would do. But when an unbeliever goes to reversionism, it's even worse. Because he never did believe in the Lord, but he has association. He has a history of knowing the way of righteousness. So now he's antagonistic even more toward the Word. You ever see unbelievers? Well, believers can be reversionistic as well. Where they can be in such a, under such a discipline, as soon as they hear anything about church, minister, God... Bitterness rises up in them, and they just curse or do anything, you know, because they hate, you know, the idea, anything related to God. So that's interesting to note that uh, people would say that that is uh, where you can lose your salvation. Does anybody have any questions about that? When, when he was uh, speaking to the congregation, do you think any of them were there present at that time? It's possible, but because he, he wasn't, this is a written letter, so he wrote this so that it would go and they would read it in the congregation. And I would imagine so, because it's a warning to the church, you know, to, to let them know that this is the character of people. Just like John says, uh, if, if you say you hate your brother, right, and how can you love God and hate your brother? You cannot. And, and he's giving that as a test to show that people can use to identify false teachers in the church. So I believe that this pretty much confirms that even, yeah, he was talking to believers. All the scriptures are written to believers, but information about unbelievers are certainly in the scriptures. Right? Okay. All right, 
So uh, hope. Is any other thoughts on this? You're going to get this question. Trust me. You're going to be out there. Somebody's going to. Sure enough, as you're alive, somebody's going to say, "What about this verse?" Well, you need to have some understanding about what the context is, and you need to be able to answer. You know, with with confidence, what this is all about. You, if you have anybody who thinks that this verse is about believers, I'm surprised. I really am. I know, I know it actually does say some things that might make people think that it's a, you know, believer. Hello? Oh, thought we had... Did you have a question? No, not this time. I'm just listening. Oh, okay. All right. All right, so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to continue on where we were. We're, 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 where we were is we were talking about common and efficacious grace. It's very important because here is the greatest thing God ever did. What is the greatest thing God ever did? Now, that we, that's debatable, I know. Because, you know, some people will say, oh, he created everything. Well, if he didn't create everything, then what, how could anything have come about? Right? Well, the greatest thing he ever did, in my opinion, would be the fact that Christ... Well, actually, let's put the second. I won't tell you what the first is, but let's just say this is a great thing, that Christ was judged for the sins of the whole world. That's a great thing. And without that, no person could be saved. Not one. Especially since everybody was condemned in Adam. Boy, we could talk about what's great. We could talk about creation. We could talk about all those things. But if we're lost, if we're going to the lake of fire, then what, I mean, I don't know how great, you know, we could talk about how great the sun is now, but it's going to be dark when we die because we're going straight to the lake of fire. So says the Bible. So we need to make sure that we put our priorities in order and think about what's going to happen after we leave this world. We need to begin to have some thought, form some thought about what our eternal future is going to look like. Okay? So how do we do that? Where, where do we begin? Well, first of all, God did this, this great event by judging our sins in Christ. All of, now, the fact that he did this great thing, and it took a lot for God to do this. And I like it where it says in Romans 8, 32, where it says... Uh, he did not even spare his own son, but he delivered him over to judgment. In other words, this is not something easy for God. This is something that took a lot for God to do. He did not even spare. In other words, he did not even hold back. When he could, he, he's saying, I would, if there was another way, I would have taken it. But he even went to the length of not even sparing or, or, or giving his son a pass. But he judged him for our sins. There are currently four participants in your conference. The following people are in the conference. Oh, I didn't mean to hit that. Hold on. Roster playback is complete. Okay. Hit the wrong key. Okay, so, what was that? Hold on. Can everybody hear me? 
hoping we don't have trouble with this phone tonight. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Okay, yeah. good. Good, okay. Now you might want to put your phone on mute and that's star six. Star six will put your phone on mute. Right. Unless you have a question, that is. Okay. So, the greatest thing God ever did for us, I mean, if he did all this, and who knew that he did this? I mean, maybe angels knew about it, right? But man, for the most part, I mean, they had to be made known of this. They had to be brought, this had to be brought to their attention. So it's very important that this information get to man because this is the very thing that God says you need to know. This information you need to know if you're going to be saved. You need to, like I, if you read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and this is uh, what he says here. 1 Corinthians uh, 15. And look at, look at verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I preached, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. This is important, first importance that you ought to note this doctrine. Now Paul is preaching it, but you know what? It's more than man's responsibility to get this message out. It's God's responsibility. If he, he didn't need man to judge their sins in Christ, did he? That was independent of man. But what Someone he did entered the conference. was he, uh, he judged our sins. Alright, how you doing? He judged our hey. sins in Christ and without our help, without our permission. So he doesn't need us to, to, to complete such a uh, momentous task. But what he did, now we have to turn the corner and say, does he need us to tell man about what he's done? Well, first, we know that it's important that he, do, that he does tell man. That is what we talk about when we say common grace. God allows every person to know the great thing that he's done. I mean, the greatest thing he ever did, he has to tell man. Not only did he make it a condition for salvation that man know this, so he has to at least get this message out so that man has an opportunity to make a decision for or against Christ. That's logical. That's just a logical point to make. So how does he do it? We've already talked about how he does it. The Holy Spirit goes after men. He is relentless and trying to turn the heart of man to God, isn't it? So now, this information also, if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse uh, 14, we've read this before, let's read it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, there's a problem that we just need to overcome. And it says, the man without the spirit or, as the Greek would say, the sukikos man, and the soulish man, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. They are spiritually discerned. Now this is 1 Corinthians 2 and 14. Now what's interesting, because this is spiritual information, the fact that Christ died for our sins. Man, in the physical realm, 
really can't understand that. They'll talk about, well, he died on the cross. But they don't understand the fact that our sins, every sin you would ever commit, past, present, or future, was collected and poured out and imputed on Christ and judged. Now, for people to understand that, that means we got to have an omnipotent God, an omniscient God, who knows all, and he can look into the future, and he can see all the sins of all mankind, so that he can put them on Christ and judge them. And that's just, this is a, a spiritual matter. Only God could possibly do this. Man, this is not even in the realm of any human possibility. So this is spiritual information. The fact that Christ died for our sins. Spiritual. How does man understand spiritual information when 1 Corinthians 2.14 says there's a limitation? And also we found in Romans 3 where it says no one seeks God. So man of his own would naturally not look to God for any help or spiritual information. He, does, he will naturally turn away from God. So we got a problem. The problem is man will turn away from God and second, he has a limitation. 1 Corinthians 2.14, he cannot understand spiritual things, things that come from the Spirit of God. So man is really lost. But one thing we can know, and this is true of everybody, everybody here, is that we do, in fact, seek God, don't we? Men do seek God. I did. You did. So what happened? Well, if these verses are, in fact, true, and men do seek God, then guess what we have to come to realize? That something happened. Something happened in, this, in these verses to intervene. And what was that? That was God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit in common grace steps in and he intervenes so that man can understand spiritual information. Now, what is it about man that allows him to understand spiritual information? What is it? It is his human spirit. Remember? Now, in the beginning, the Bible talks about Adam and, and the woman in the garden and how they had a relationship with God. They were born body, soul, and spirit. The body and soul uh, part of them relates to the human uh, environment, the earth. Right? They're in, uh, all the, the earthly environment, the body and the soul relate to. The senses, touch, taste, smell, hear, you know. Uh, there's another one somewhere in there. But, but <laughs> right? See, all of those senses right, relate to the human realm. And the spirit of man relates to the divine, the spiritual realm where God exists. So, so in other words, not only can man understand and comprehend things on the earth level, but he can understand and comprehend things on a spiritual level where God exists. So, what happened when Adam disobeyed God was he lost that spirit, that ability to uh, understand spiritual things. And as a result of that, we say he is spiritually dead. And that's what it says. Therefore, it's just as one uh, man's sin entered into the world through one man, and death by sin. In this way, death spread to all men, for they didn't all have sinned. He's talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death. Jesus said, I come that you might have life. What kind of life do we need? I mean, he's talking to people who are alive. 
He, we need spiritual life. I come that you might have life. So we need spiritual life. But, and once we get spiritual life, once we become born again, which is the second one we're going to cover, regeneration, now we can understand Someone has entered things. the conference. But prior to that, us becoming okay. born again, we cannot understand or comprehend spiritual things. So says 1 Corinthians 2 and 14. It says the natural man, the man in the state from Adam, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. But what happens? Something happens where God actually has to intervene. God would have to because man certainly can't do anything. And God the Holy Spirit comes in in common grace and he takes up the slack where man is ignorant and cannot understand. God the Holy Spirit acts as that human spirit that is missing for man. So that when we read John chapter 3 and verse 18, we're not kidding. This is real. This is not, this is not a joke. Right? John chapter 3 and verse 18, it is says, let's just read it real quick. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry. We're not going to read 18. Let's read 36. 36. And it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And believing is a decision. You have to understand what it is you believe. You just can't say, okay, I believe. Everybody must believe. Okay, I believe. That doesn't save you. You have to understand who the Son is. What he did, just like Paul said, of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. But whoever rejects the Son, that means refuses right, to obey the Son's command to believe in him, will not see life. Now how can you reject something that you don't understand? See, so you have to be enlightened so that you can understand before you reject. And that is what these men were. They were enlightened... And they said, no, I don't want that. No, and I refuse. They turn away from God. That is where it says, he re whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. Notice, even though they're enlightened to the point where they can make an informed decision, they are still under the wrath of God, aren't they? They're not saved because they know the way of salvation, but they turn away, just like we read in that other verse, they turn their backs on that holy commandment. They reject the Son. They will not see life, and God's wrath will remain on them. Well, that's, that, that's clear. And you could also go back to John 3.18, and it says the same thing, basically. Uh, 3.18, whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe... Well, what do you mean, did not believe? You mean, he never knew? Yes, he knew, but he refused to believe in the Son. As simple as that. He stands condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed. Now, if it's because he has not believed, that means he has to have known. He's culpable. It's his, it's his fault. Why? Because he has not believed. Can't blame this on Adam. Adam is not an issue here, is it? Now, this person was born in sin, shaping in iniquity, all those scriptures everybody knows, right? Born spiritually dead, under the wrath of God, condemned, not for his sins, but because of what Adam did. But here, this man is condemned because what? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now this brings another question. A question we have been exploring quite a bit. And that question is, what about those who can't believe? Who maybe they were too young. Maybe they 
their mental capacity is less than you know uh, able to comprehend the the details of salvation so what about people like that can they possibly be saved or how can they be saved because it says whoever believes in Christ is saved they can't believe because they just don't have enough mental uh, capacity to understand the gospel what happens to them anybody what if, what if they don't understand? Let's say they're a child, maybe. To child children? How do you do that? <laughs> so, so, Jewel is going to. I thought you were going to give me a scripture. Grace. All right. So, Bill, you were going to say to add to that? I was going to say this is where God omnipotence has to come into play through mm -hmm. grace, for He knows all the knowables. Okay. And that person, let's say if it was a child, we we can't say. I mean, we have some scripture for for a child. We can go to um, uh, where Samuel, right? No, or David's son. David's son. Yes. Right. So we can we can fall back on that. But does that really? <coughs> even though that's that's the one we've used, and it right. does answer that. Hey, we believe that kids, all kids, would probably be in heaven. They're innocent in the sense that. Not innocent in that they're not sinners, but they have not had an opportunity to believe. Like David's baby, right? Now, obviously, right, he couldn't have made it clear to David's baby, right? Of course he can't. Well, well, see now, but then we'd be stretching it beyond what the Bible you're, says. You're talking about making it clear to him here before. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. So he, he, in other words, people who are living... And, and the Bible says that if you believe in Christ, you'll have eternal life. And, and, but if you don't, then the wrath of God will remain on you. So what about these people who, who don't, don't have an opportunity to believe? Young children, right, who don't understand the issues of the gospel. They're just, it's just above them. They can't really comprehend. Or people who are born to, you know, mentally deficient, where they just do not have the capacity to even hold a conversation. Now, let alone, uh, you know, try to the, the complexities of the gospel. So, what about those people? Are they saved? Can they be saved? What do you think the answer to that is? God knows the heart. He knows what they would choose. Ah, uh -huh. so we project upon what what if they had faculties, what they would have said. But that would kind of be subjective because God could say, you know, because He wants to save all, right? He said, "I'm not willing that any should perish, and I'm going to make." Sure Sure, everybody can be saved. Here's a better answer that we could come up with. And that is that one thing we don't see, and we've already talked about this before. See, the only reason people can be lost is what? What's the, and this is really the only reason people are going to be lost. If they have refused the truth. Because they reject Christ. Right? Doesn't it say that? We just read two scriptures that said, this is the reason, because... He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He did not refuse, or, or if you refuse Christ, then that's it. God can't help you. So here, to, now, we, we, now we're entering into a category where we say, oh, what if the person doesn't know? He, he just can't make an informed decision. The Holy Spirit can't enlighten him to the gospel. Right? What about that kind of person? Well, God still saves them. He still does. Can't do it. Can't do it. 
At least from our standpoint. From our standpoint. Yeah, because yeah. because what happens is a child, a little baby, just cannot comprehend uh, the complexities of the gospel. It's just impossible. At least from our perspective. Now, even if God were to do it and said, I'm saving babies, we just have to say, okay, God, if that's what you say, that they would have grown up and they would have begun, you know, sang in the choir and they would have been saved, then okay. See, but we would have to take God's word for that, wouldn't we? But how do we know? There is a way we can know for sure. There is a way. And you know what that is? It is because of what I'm just telling you. The only reason that people are lost is because they have rejected Christ. Have they rejected Christ? They have not rejected Christ. Well, see, the only other thing is that we, we are having a problem now is because we're thinking, oh, wait a minute, they haven't believed in Christ, right? If they haven't believed in Christ, how can they be saved? Isn't believing in Christ a condition for salvation? I say, yes, it is. But not for all. Not for all. Why? Jesus Christ paid for them. He is the one who, on the cross, he purchased them. And I'm going to give you two scriptures that basically demonstrate that. First one is in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, turn with me there. Chapter 4. And we'll look at this. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read verses uh, 10. We'll get right to it. We've got 15 minutes. We don't want to... We could read the context and go through all that because that would be good. It would just confirm it more, I think. 4.10. What does it say? And for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of who? All men. All men. Especially of those who believe. Sounds like two categories here to me. Yeah. Two categories of men. He's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. How come Christ can be called the Savior of all men? Because he died for all men. Didn't he? He died for the sins of the whole world. Now, basically, it is as if, remember, redemption, the, the word redemption actually speaks to a slave being sold on the slave market. Now, Christ paid the ransom price for the sins of uh, all the world, didn't he? He purchased them, in a sense, but, and, and the reason why some will not be saved is because they refuse him. They said, no, I will not believe. I will not believe. So what happens? Even though Christ ransomed them, he paid for them, they deny him. So in other words, all men are born under the sun, and they're born in this level of salvation. Yes. And they make a choice to step out. To step out. Now, just like we talked about the book of life, right? Their names are written in the book of life, and what, what, ha what happens at the last judgment? They check the book of life, and what? The name's not in there. It was blotted out. Right? Why did it blotted out? Because they died without believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Their names are removed from the book of life. That's why they show up at the last judgment. And now they have to go to the book of works. You don't want to have to go to the book of works. Trust me. that You're not going to fare too well there. So, so this verse says that he's the savior of all men. Now we even, we even read the second verse was the one we already read. About these false teachers, right? 
They deny the sovereign Lord. And what does it say? Who bought them? What do you mean bought them? You mean they're saved? No, they're not saved. But the Lord paid for every one of their sins. He, in essence, he purchased the right to be their Savior. Even though they deny him, he purchased the right to be their Savior. But they will not come. It's like Jesus says, I would have gathered you, but you were not willing. You just were not willing. See, so this is interesting in, in, in that we come to understand now that salvation just is just what it says. If you refuse to believe in Christ, well, you will not see life, and the wrath of God will remain on you. Well, if the Holy Spirit, through common grace, cannot reach you, Christ still is your Savior. He is the one who paid for your sins, and you will not be lost. Because God, Jesus Christ, suffered and died for you. And you didn't have a chance to say, I refuse you, Jesus Christ. So therefore, Jesus Christ can save you. He is the Savior of the whole world. He is the Savior of all men. That's God's desire to save you. And then there's 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we know what God's desire is. 2.4. It says, um, Who wants all men to be saved. He wants all men to be saved. What would be the only reason why all men would not be saved? It's because those men will refuse him. They will reject him. That would be the only reason why all men cannot be saved. Because he certainly made provision for them, didn't he? And nothing's lacking there. That provision is complete. But all they have to do to complete the transaction on their side is to believe. Put their trust in Christ for their soul salvation. And they refused to do it. He was he's all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what we're doing here tonight. We're coming to a knowledge of the truth. And verse uh, 6 is, well, let's continue. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. All men. Not just those who believe, all men. He paid, he bought, he, he, he sacrificed his life for their sins. And yet, if they, and, and now all they have to do is not refuse him. Not refuse him. And but now, is, is anybody going to get a free pass? No, because God the Holy Spirit says, you know, the common grace says that he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Holy Spirit's not going to miss you. Trust me. You will know. If you have the mental capacity to understand, you will come to the knowledge of Christ and, and have a decision to make for or against Christ. Most of us have nothing to say about that because we can't say, well, you know, we didn't hear. I'm closing my ears because I don't want to hear. Well, then you've already made a decision not to hear. Right? You think that's going to, you think closing your ears can stop God the Holy Spirit? He's witnesses to your soul. So common grace is the God the Holy Spirit making the gospel which is spiritual information perspicuous, lucid, plain to your soul. He he makes it a reality to your soul. That's what common grace is. Then we turn the corner and we talk about efficacious grace. And efficacious grace means that after you have made that decision to put your faith in Christ, to trust the matter of your soul's salvation to Christ, 
What makes that effective? That's just a choice. Anybody can make that choice. So what? Who is the one who turns that into the power of, of salvation? It is God the Holy Spirit. He makes your faith effective. Your faith has no power in and of itself. In fact, your faith is nothing. And all, all, only one, only reason your faith can save you is because of what God does in power. His omnipotence, where he takes you out of Adam and he places you in Christ, and all those things begin to happen simultaneously for you. That's the power of God. Who does that? Your faith? No. That's, your faith is nothing. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who makes your faith effective for salvation. Now this is uh, important for us to note. We, we just want to tie it all up, make sure we understand it, so that uh, you know we can't, we can't look at this and say, well, wait a minute, it sounds good, but all the scriptures that we've covered, we talked about the ransom, we talked about God's desire. I know in 2 Peter 3, he talks about God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Right. He's not willing that any should perish. He died. He sent his own son. He showed that he's not willing. So it, it, now the, it's really on us. It's on man to go ahead and fulfill that which God has given us. Does anybody have any questions about this? Good? All right. All right. So. Well, you could hear if they're having a there. Oh, let's see. Yeah. So if there are questions, we want to be able to, to dig them out. Common and efficacious grace is going to lead us right into regeneration. Regeneration next week. But we still got a couple minutes left, and we're going to finish them on common and efficacious grace. So, and, and we already said before that um, with, uh, with God doing the greatest thing, which is to sacrifice His Son, His only Son, for all of your sins, that that needs to be, that information needs to get out. And that is God's business in getting it out. He goes to each person's heart. He has come to all of us. And the Holy Spirit has witnessed to your heart. How do you think you understand this information? Some people will say, "Well, I, I'm smart. You know, I, I've, you know, I've got great, great grades in school, and I've, everything the teacher threw at me, I, I just assimilated it. It was no problem. I got great grades, right? So people think that, and they say, "Well, okay. So that's how I understand the gospel. Man, it came to me. I understood it right away. Well, let me tell you how you understood the gospel." It was the aid of the Holy Spirit. Without that, you would not. I don't care how smart you are, you never would have understood even a little bit of what the gospel is about. You'd have twisted it up and had it a system of works, which is what most of the world has done. And then, once they've twisted it like that, they like what they've come up with. They like their plan of salvation more than they like God's plan of salvation. So it's hard to get them, once they've understood works, it's hard to get them to understand grace now. But God the Holy Spirit is persistent. He will continue to go after you, to try to enlighten you, just like he did in, in, in the Old Testament. Until, I mean, in the Old Testament they were judged with the flood. That was it. Those people were so wicked. And with Israel, God judged people right, as well. So we don't want to say it's forever, 
when it says until you die, well, that could be sooner, it could be later. We don't want we don't want to impress upon God to you know keep us alive, you know, or that we are promised some some amount of years. So if you know that God the Holy Spirit is working with you, how do you know? Because you are beginning to have an interest in spiritual things. You, whenever the Bible is being talked about, or Jesus Christ, or God the Holy Spirit, or the Father, your ears grow. They begin to just, you know, vibrate because you're like, whoa, somebody's talking about God. Well, that is, the fact that you are even interested in the things of God demonstrate that God the Holy Spirit is working in your life. You want to see a miracle? Then that's, what, that's the miracle. That a person who is dead, I'm talking about, who would turn away from God, and now that person is interested in the things of God. In fact, he's coming now. When they're talking about Bible, church, this, he's coming to Bible study. That person is, is showing up. And that is a miracle. That is the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. He's getting you prepared to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that person who has those spiritual interests, man, to me, it is the greatest thing to see them pursuing God and asking questions, being inquisitive. I'm sure you've all had experiences where you have looked at people and, and they were just cold. And all of a sudden now, they come alive. Now there's meaning and purpose in their lives. And they're pursuing God. And that is nothing but God, the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. They got questions. They're eager. They're listening. That's God the Holy Spirit working in that person's heart. And everyone here can identify with it. You know why? Because it happened to you. It happened to me. God, the Holy Spirit made the... And I kept pursuing. He kept giving me the interest and, and, and driving me along until one day, there I saw. There was Christ. Before me, just as big as day. And all I had to do was believe in Him. That was it. And I was saved. And you, and you continue. And until you get, you keep on work, let the Holy Spirit work with you until you actually see the Lord. Did you have a question? Oh, no. Oh, I thought you had a question. No, I was scratching my arm. Oh, <laughs> you got to watch that scratching in here because I will certainly take that for a question in a minute. So don't don't make it. I might be starved for questions. Somebody flinches. I think you have a question. So so we really want to make sure that you honor God, the Holy Spirit. When you see God, the Holy Spirit working in somebody's life, don't get in the way. You get with the Holy Spirit so that you can aid, that you can be a co-worker together with God. You ever see people who are interested in God and then they're stifled? People get in the way. They turn them off. You want to encourage them and begin to, to help them to see who Jesus Christ is. If God can use me in that way, that's all I want to do. What a work that is to be able to, to share in a person's eternal destiny. The fact that I, can, I may use my mouth to enlighten somebody is the, is the, most, the greatest thing in my eyes. I find the most joy doing that. So when you see, you're going to see, this is a visible thing, common grace. You're going to be able to look and see God the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of people. And when you see it, 
I want you to admire that, esteem that, and be a, a co-worker together with God the Holy Spirit. Don't block. Make sure that that person has every available resource that they need. Try to get all their questions answered. Do the best you can to get uh, in their hands the Bible, the Word of God, right answers. And that's how you can facilitate uh, God the Holy Spirit enlightening them. He may be using you. This is a great thing. So you'll be able to watch and see common grace. And then some of you may actually witness efficacious grace. Where that person actually does believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're saved. And you, they may look at you and say, you had a part with me coming to Christ. You, I remember when I was lost and I began to talk to you. And you said these words to me. And before I knew it, I was putting my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What, a, what an honor that's going to be for you. What great joy you're going to have as you lead people to the Lord. That's what we want to think about when we think about common and efficacious grace. And that's something, as I said, is visible that you're going to be able to witness. And you already have. God the Holy Spirit, is He here? Yes. Is He working? He's working hard. And I, I have to say, in the same age... Many people are resisting Him. But God is faithful and He will continue to be faithful. So in that, we will be faithful in sharing the gospel and being and standing firm as one man for the gospel. Let's stand and as we close. We're going to have a word of prayer. We always recognize the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So next week we're going to talk about being born again. I know you have heard being born again all, a whole lot. But we're going to deal with it in a little bit different way. And we're going to dig in and talk about the benefits of being born again. You're going to see that everything about us, God doesn't leave anything out. He has a complete package for us. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father, for the, the word that you have given us this evening. We are so grateful, Lord, for you've so graced us out. You've lavished your grace upon us. You've given us super abundant blessings beyond which we can ask or imagine. These are things, Father, that you have hidden from the wise and the prudent, but you have revealed them unto babies. And we know now, Father, that you have, you have revealed them by means of your Spirit. It is the job of your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to give us the knowledge that is lacking so that we can make that decision. And Lord, we pray that maybe some are struggling right now with that decision to be able to put their trust completely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe they've been trusting in their works, their goodness, their behavior, uh, or, or some personality trait that they've been depending on. Lord, help them to know that it is the Lord Jesus who saves and Him alone. And we're so grateful that we have seen, Father, the encompassing nature of His atonement and what it means for those who uh, He has died for. We're so thankful, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has sacrificed himself and has gone through the darkness so that he can be that savior, that light 
that we, we can look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So Lord, we're thankful for the Word is Truth Christian Church. Keep us in our vision, Father. We pray that uh, we would continue to be faithful and, and we pray for the church and uh, those who lead out in the church. We also pray for those who are uh, joining us by conference, Lord. And you know each one of them, Father. We pray that ble your blessings upon them. Uh, challenge them by the things that we've heard this evening, Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.